Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 23. We're continuing our study in longing for heaven. And so we've looked at the lies of Satan. We've looked at the original uh, blueprint of heaven that was found in the Garden of Eden, was supposed to expand and go into all the world. We um, talked the last time that I was with you about what does it mean to not fear death, um, but to trust into God and that we are, um, according to, again, John Piper, we are immortal until God decides he's ready to take us. So we don't have to live in fear. We can stand firm knowing that God is going to take care of us in any situation that we find ourselves because he's the one who's faithful. And so today we come to a, a part where we start to ask in some ways the big question, is eternity real? Um, Woody Allen's quoted as saying that what someone who writes a good book starts with a good ending and then writes backwards. I was with uh, Mike Palmer and he's having to do his internship things and so he had to go with the hospital visits uh, with me this week and as we're driving I said you know one of the frustrations sometimes for me is we've gone through seminary we do all this time, we, we get to study, we get to tell people about Jesus, but as soon as someone crosses over and dies, they know more than I can ever dream or imagine about the reality of who God is. And so that's a little frustrating that my life means absolutely nothing in some ways, um, but that's okay, because when I die, then I would figure it out and go, oh, so this is what it meant. But we ask the question, what is the reality in regards to eternity? Is it real? So we find ourselves in the midst of the context of this passage. And so, again, we're at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves in the book of Luke because this is the only place where it is recorded where Jesus is dealing with the thieves. So all the other ones talk about the thieves being there, but here we get to see the conversion uh, of one upon the cross. And so it's going to be very interesting. informative for us as we look at it this morning. So before we go to the passage, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to your word, it is your word, it's not our words. And so, Father, we need the Holy Spirit to come and to come in power, to come with clarity of thought. So, Father, that we might come to your word and hear your truth and then apply it to our hearts So, Father, we come knowing that, again, you hear us and you will answer this prayer. So, Father, for those who are here that are yours, give them eyes to see. And, Lord, maybe there are those who aren't yours that are here this morning. May they see the reality of the gospel clearly, maybe for the first time, and run to you, just as the thief did upon the cross. So, Father, calm our hearts and our minds. Lord, let the focus be upon you and you alone. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through uh, 43 this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. 
But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the first thing I want to do as we look at this passage is to ask some of the questions in regards to Jesus' statement. Father, forgive them. And I want to do that because the question really should be for us is, who is them? Who is it? So is it the Roman soldiers that are crucifying Jesus that are just fulfilling their orders? They don't know any better. They don't know who this is. They're just doing their job. Or is it for the Jewish leaders Those who, again, still need the help of God to give them eyes to see and understand that who it is that they have uh, now put upon the cross was the Messiah, the Christ. Or was it for all the people that were surrounding the cross? Was it for the thieves? Who is them at this moment? Well, it's indistinctive in some ways because he is praying for those people that are there. But Spurgeon says this, he loves this prayer of indistinctiveness. And he said he loves it because of hope. See, this prayer begins to talk about that Jesus, even at this moment, was praying for both Jews and Gentiles. He was praying for everyone. He was praying for everyone that was there, but he also leaves it open. He doesn't define it there. He leaves it open for us so that we might have hope that we too can be forgiven of our sins because we don't know what we are doing. So we have this them of this indistinctiveness that Jesus is praying. But then during the same time that Jesus is praying and saying these words, there's mocking that's going on. And there's mocking from a lot of people. The, the first one comes from those of the, of the religious sort. And they said, hey, you saved others. Save yourself. If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, if you are who you say yourself, who you say yourself is, come down off the cross. We'll believe you. Now, again, R.C. Sproul, I think, gets it right. If he was to save himself, he would not be able to save others. The thing that Jesus had to do was to stay upon the cross because if he doesn't stay upon the cross, none of us are forgiven. So we have these these people, these religious people that are crying out and saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, come down off the cross. We'll believe you. Then you have the the soldiers who are mocking him, who are joining in. But not only the the soldiers and the, the people who are around scoffing, but then there's mocking voices from bitter contempt from the people who are being crucified with him. Now, how low do you have to be that as you're being crucified, you're mocking someone else? 
I mean, think about that. This is one of the most horrific things that have ever, man has ever created to kill people in all of history. It's gruesome. It's hardship. And so they actually have to push off of the nail in their feet in order to lift themselves up, catch a breath to talk. So instead of crying out, instead of asking for forgiveness or asking for mercy, they're sitting there being crucified, mocking someone next to them. And not only mocking them, but it's a bitter contempt. He says, hey, if you can't really save yourself, and they probably heard some of the stories of Jesus. Remember, Lazarus has just been raised not too long ago. All the stories are out there. They've probably been in prison for a while awaiting this death sentence. So they probably have heard about Jesus. And yet, here he says, hey, if you can save yourself, you save yourself, then here, save me too. And isn't that common for us? Sometimes we, we look to, to Jesus, we look to God in a limited ses, sense. We, we want him to help us in emergencies. Hey, hey, God, there's something bad going on right now. Can you, can you fix this? And then maybe for a little bit bolder, hey, God, can you fix this? And if you fix this, then I'll go to church X amount of times, or I'll start reading my Bible again, or I'll be a nicer person, or whatever we might fill in the blanks with. Now, how many people really follow up on that? Because once we feel safe again, we don't need Jesus anymore. So here is this, this prisoner, this criminal, whose bitter contempt is falling upon Christ with all the others. But at the same moment, and again, what, what I want you to understand is that all, all of the passages that deal with the crucifixion talk about the criminals mocking, both criminals mocking Jesus. So how do we get to this criminal coming to a conversion? See, part of this that we need to recognize is that Jesus, listen, Jesus in his most extreme moment in all of life was still thinking and praying for other people. Do you get that? In the most painful physical pain that he's ever experienced. And he will go to the most spiritual pain that he will ever experience. Still is thinking and praying for others. Think about what he did for Peter. Right before he was going to deny him three times. He was praying. He says, I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm praying for you. Because Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And I know you're going to fail, Peter. But when you do return to me, I'm waiting. He prays for these criminals that are there with him. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. And he's now numbered as one of them upon the cross. So again, we don't know what changed for this criminal. Was it the words that he saw Jesus uh, talking to to the people? Was it the actions that he had? We don't know. 
The Bible doesn't tell us. But he has this conversion experience upon the cross. And how do we know he had this conversion experience? Well, the first thing he does is he rebukes the other one. Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? For we deserve this punishment. Now, I truly think that this is a concern for the lost. Because again, just like I told you, I don't think he's pushing up off of this nail to rebuke him in a sense of saying, Hey, shut up! Don't you know what's going on here? I think there's genuine concern for him. Do, do you not even fear God at the last moments of your life? It's the application for us. Is, is there a concern for the lost in your life? Do we really care if people are going to hell? Are we, are we just okay with the people that are going to heaven? Now again, I don't want to go back to my Baptist roots and guilt you into, if you're not preaching Christ then you're sending people to hell yourself. That's not true. But we of all people, knowing that God moves in miraculous ways, should be telling people about Christ as many opportunities as we have. Do you know Jesus? Nope. Well, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you how my life has changed because of how he ministered to me. The lost has got to be in concern for us. And not just, don't, always put it upon me well, don't, well, you need to come to church and talk to my pastor you know the gospel it's very simple are you a sinner are you someone ask him this Even don't even use that word sinner because a lot of people are sinner. just say do you think that people should be given punishment for things that they do wrong I'm sure without a doubt, everybody says yes. That's why we have rules. That's why we have laws. Then ask the question, follow-up question. Have you done anything wrong? Have you ever sped? Have you ever taken food into a movie theater and brought it out during the movie? Have you ever fudged on your taxes a little bit? Have you ever cheated on your test? Even you homeschoolers, have you looked in the back of the book to get the answers? I see those faces. It's sad. And we're in the church. So if we know that we do bad things and we deserve punishment, then we're in a bad place. And the bad place puts us in a place where we need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the only one who perfectly, perfectly lived a life. And then he offered a sacrifice for you and me easy and people need to hear it and so we have this concern for the loss from this conversion from the one criminal to the other but then he begins to give a confession and an admission and he starts talking about his guilt I deserve this and then he also talks about the confession that Jesus was innocent how does he know Jesus was innocent we know that Pilate said he was innocent. We know that Herod said he was innocent. How does the criminal know he's innocent? But he does. He knows he doesn't deserve to be there. 
And he makes this confession and he says, truly, I want you to understand that this man of all men was saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. He doesn't go to church. He's not baptized. He doesn't have any more time to do good works. So why would he be saved? Because of Christ. And so Christ gives his life. And then this is what the criminal asks. Remember me. The only thing he cries out for is mercy. Now, again, we talk about heaven. We talk about this. But during this time and the Jewish beliefs that this system was thinking that the only time that he would have been given the opportunity to repent was at the judgment time, the judgment seat and repentance. So he wasn't thinking at this moment. He was thinking, hey, Jesus, when the the resurrection comes in your kingdom, and think about that. He knows all the things that have been, um, the contempt that's been going on has been talking about Jesus. If you are a king, if you are a king, and this criminal knows Jesus is a king. When your kingdom comes, remember me. And then Jesus says things that to the religious people and to this specific criminal blows their minds. He says to them, truly today you will be with me in paradise. Now we need to talk about this a little bit because there is a concern here. And the concern is, where is the comma in your Bible? So it says, truly I say to you, comma, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what if it said, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Now, let me continually blow your mind. In the Greek, there would have been no punctuation. So how do we know? So we start asking questions about not just the importance of where the comma goes, but what about time? Let's think about it. Is this the exact moment when he dies? Isn't he talking about three days when I raise again from the dead? That's when you get to go with me to paradise. Now, I want to tell you that there are people who have many different views on this. People think that there is a time for purification. You go to purgatory. Now, I'm not going to talk about purgatory today because I'm going to talk about it later in the month. You got to come back to hear the rest of the story. But there are those who believe that there's an annihilation, a complete annihilation, but there's others who believe in soul sleep. And this is what probably the criminal probably expected was that he would die and go into, in essence, a soul sleep. Now, what is that? Okay, first of all, they look at soul sleep as being a literal, when they read things in scripture, of being a literal, we go to sleep. Now, where do they get that from? They get it from Psalm 146.4. When, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So they look and go, if your plans perish, you're no more. You're just in the grave. Now, What is something that I say to you all the time? Don't be one verse theologians. Look at the context. Even look at this verse. Now, if they were smart enough, that's too harsh. 
if they read this verse correctly, what does it say? On that very day, his plans perish. If you have plans, if you have a kick the bucket list, if you have things that you're wanting to do, those are your plans. If you die, do you get to do them? No, you've missed the opportunity. That's what Psalm 146 is talking about. You've blown it. You died. Though plans are no more. Ecclesiastes, though, talks, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, again, context is key. The book of Ecclesiastes is from a human perspective. All is vanity, correct? So it's very a humanistic understanding. So it's not talking about soul sleep. So when the Bible talks, and especially in the New Testament, about sleeping, it's a very descriptive word. It's a softer picture of talking about death. Because we need to be mindful. We need to be gentle with people. Now, you know your pastor's a jerk. I get it. So here's another example for you to add to your list. So if you're keeping notes on this, you can add it to it. Okay, so I'm always getting to this place because everybody on my side of the family has passed away. So if someone says something to me, and especially if they don't know me well or whatever, they would say, well, you know, are you going to go visit your parents or anything? And I said, no, my parents are dead. Thanks for asking. Thanks for bringing it up and, you know, pouring salt on my wound and stuff like that. And they're like, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I'm just like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we need to be mindful, right? We need to be gentle with one another. And so even in the scripture, God is always talking to us in terms, a lot of times, I mean, think of like baby terms. He's speaking softly and gently to us. So when he begins to talk to us from Luke 8, 52, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, here, it, it's very clear that he's applying the sleeping to dead. But now he's talking about she's not dead in the sense of being soul sleep or being annihilated. She's sleeping in heaven. Now, what does that mean? That means she's dead here, alive there. So we have this coming from Luke 8, 52, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. So God, in his gentleness, is giving a description of saying, hey, it's not soul sleep. It's not an actual you go to the grave and you're there unconscious until the resurrection. Something does happen. And he says very specifically to this thief, which again is mind-boggling, today. And so this is something that we talk about in, in theology about the intermediate state. What happens to the souls when it happens? So here, here's what scripture has to say, Philippians 1, 21. And I hope I get to this. Yes. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We've talked about that already. So we're either living or if we're dying, we're with Christ. Here specifically, where we read earlier. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But then it goes on to say that when we're with the Lord, that we're there with him in presence. 
So we have this understanding that, again, we are immediately with Christ. Now, let me give you the answer from the Westminster Confession. These are good. Go look them up. What happens to believers at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in the grave until the resurrection. So what happens? The souls go to heaven. Now is there a body in heaven? I don't know. Now we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. You've got to come back again. See how good I do that? You've got to keep coming back. You don't get all the answers. But the soul goes to heaven, perfected. The body stays in the grave. So if you go dig up people, are they still going to be there? Yes, because the resurrection hasn't come. But now what happens to those who are unbelievers? The souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons until the resurrection and the judgment of the great day. So if you don't know Christ, you don't go to purgatory. You don't get to sleep for a long time. You automatically go to torment. And all of us await for the day of the resurrection. That is coming. And it's getting closer than you think. And so this happens to be on that immediate purpose, that day, that moment, that nanosecond, whatever you want to say, that we go to Christ. But there's also a longing. And there's a, there's a thing. I messed it up. My problem. But there's a longing because, listen, it's not finished So again, we talked about there's the Eden, Genesis 1 through 3, but Genesis starting in chapter 3 to Revelation 20 is the heaven now and the earth now. So we know from Revelation 6.10 that there are saints longing for the day for Christ to redeem his time. Now, now this also freaked me out this week because I'm someone who at many uh, funerals talks about there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears in heaven. Where does that come in the Bible though? Revelation chapter 21. The new heavens and the new earth. Huh, well that messes up my theology. Because there might be an understanding that we still have hard things. Are we aware of the things that are going on here on earth? I think so. So, are there things that are changed? Yes. Is everything changed? No. Because this heaven, this present heaven now, still coexists with a fallen world. So we still are looking for the new heavens and the new earth. It still gets better. Even if you go to heaven, it still gets better. And even you Presbyterians should get excited about that. Yes. Maybe we finally get rhythm and can dance. Who knows? It's the, the limits are the end, right? I mean, isn't that going to be cool? Oh, man. Look forward to that day. We get to go to the intermediate heaven. We, we get to go to the place, but he calls it what? Paradise. 
Now, it comes from the word paradisio. Um, if you look at 2 Corinthians, the two other places that it's used, 2 Corinthians 12, 3 through 4, and Revelation 2, 7. And what it's talking about when you look at paradisio in the scripture, it's talking about a kingly garden or a park. Now, again, for those who've ever been over to Europe and if you've ever gone into parks that are connected to the royal family or they become the parks that are private, they are actually private parks over there. And you actually have a key to get into that garden. And they're beautiful. They're immaculate. Now, I'm not someone who's big on going to France. I don't like to go to places where people can talk about me in another language and I don't know. But we did. We went to France and we had a Frenchman. So I know. Were they talking about us? But he was able to say, but he took us out there to Versailles. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. But it pales in comparison to what God has in store for us. And so he says, this is a kingly park or garden, but again, it's unfinished. It is the dwelling place of God, but it's only temporary. There are still more and greater things to come in the new heaven and the new earth. But there are things that happen while we're there. We get to receive delights. And what is that? We're purified and holy. Jesus upon the cross conquered Satan's sin and death. Now, some people ask and say, well, can there be? If Think about this. Can there be another fall in heaven? No. Why? Because we are under the new covenant found in Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood covers us. So there can be no more messing it up. So we are in purified uh, place, holy in our understanding, holy in our being, and we have what's also worship and fellowship. Now, worship is more than just praise. It's not just praise music. And we appreciate McCartney. We appreciate the people up here. We appreciate singing. We appreciate, as Presbyterians kind of swaying a little bit, you're not dancing, but you're swaying. That's good. But you can be in that, in that process, but that's not all of worship. Everything is worship. Everything. So if I'm, if I'm building something for the Lord, if I'm working for the Lord, if I'm serving for the Lord, that's worship. I'm doing everything to his glory, everything to his honor. And as I have that, I have fellowship. And believe me, what is fellowship like? You get to be fully known and you get to know people fully. We get to stop lying to one another. How are you doing? Fine. How's everything going? It's fine. Hey, do you want to come to my house? No. Are we okay? Fine. Remember back as a kid, what was that moment that you started to protect yourself? I remember very clearly, I was, no, I didn't have the fashion sense, and you might still say I don't, but I had my shorts on, I had my Batman um, tank top on, and cowboy boots. And I went outside to play. And I can still remember the first time that one of my friends says, that's ugly. So what does that do for us? It's a moment that I understood you start to cover up, you start to protect who you are. And that's what we do with each other, even in the church. We're not honest. We're not open. Most of us. 
And I'm not asking you to, to go out there and start airing your dirty laundry on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever else you do. Because that's not right. That's not what we're here for. But understand this. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a fellowship with one another where there's no need for any lies anymore. There's no need to cover up anymore. Don't you long for that day? But not only do we get to be honest and open with each other, but listen, we get to be with Jesus. We only get to see Jesus dimly. But imagine to, to, to have eyes that are perfect, to see the glory, to, to be able to look upon the Christ in a physical form because he is resurrected. To touch him. To have him hug you. with Perfect love. To bathe in his glory. I mean, think about that. His Shekinah glory. And you don't have to avert your eyes. You don't have to put a veil over. You get to be with him. Because Jesus really for all of us should become the treasure that we seek. It should become the greatest thing that we hope for. This is what Jesus promises this criminal and he promises us. And Jesus at this moment on the cross fulfills all of his, his calling. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. He's a prophet because he tells him the word, truly, I tell you today. Truly, this is the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. But the only way that criminal can be in paradise is because what Jesus does is the high priest. He becomes the perfect sacrifice for us. And then the temple curtain is ripped in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. And so we don't have to grovel. I don't have to come in here crawling on my hands and knees in my, in my feet before God. He says, stand up. Stand before me because you come in the name of my son, Jesus Christ, in whom I am well pleased. So we come to worship him and we worship him as what he is, the king. The king. And he rules in perfection. And he rules forevermore. So let me ask this question. Do you believe eternity is real? Do you believe it? And if you believe it, how are you writing your chapters of life? Are we sold out to the king? And then let me ask you one more. Are you assured this day that you would hear the words from Jesus? Truly, I say to you, today you would be with me in paradise. Do you know without a shadow of doubt, you know the living Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you teach us from your word. And Lord, you tell us very clearly that there are consequences 
there is judgment. But for those who know Christ, we look forward to, like that criminal, to hear the words, truly you'll be with me in paradise. Well done, good and faithful servant. But for those who don't know Christ, Father, may we be more diligent to pray for them, to preach to them. But Lord, at all times we recognize that you're the one who's in control. You are the Savior and Savior alone. And so to you we run. And to you we give all glory and honor and praise. And so, Father, may it even start here. May we quit going through the motions with one another. May we truly begin to, to be who we really are with all the quirks, with all the, all the things that are held deep down inside that we don't want anyone to know, our skeletons in the closet, our fears, the rejections, the pains that we feel. Father, may we start to be real. May we start to be what Jesus created to be in regards to fellowship. But Father, more than anything, we look forward to the day when we're with our Savior and get to worship him as we were originally created to be. All glory, all honor to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.